Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the conversion of your servant, Saul, for transforming him from someone who persecuted the church to someone who was their chief evangelist. So transform us by your spirit that our life would always be shifting away from our own interests to those of Christ Jesus. And give us grace as we study this passage to find our own life and our own story reflected back to us in Saul's. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. And I think we'll take this in two chunks because it really is a great, okay, so you're looking at the wrong screen. Okay, can you see that? Yep. Yeah, okay. We're going to take this in two chunks because it's such a, a good passage. I don't want to break it up too much. So as I read this, I want you to think about where this hits you and um, where this uh, makes you reflect on your own journey. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, I'm going to pause there, and I'm going to try and keep this relatively brief, but there is just so much in these two paragraphs that I want to make sure I cover some of the basics before we dive in. So we start with Saul, 
who is not just persecuting the church, but he is breathing threats and murder. Remember, the breath of God is associated with our soul. In fact, in Hebrew, the word breath and soul are the same word. Uh, and the word spirit and wind are the same word in Greek. And so the idea of breath is tied to our soul. So you could almost read that as Saul is souling threats and murder. His soul is not right. He is out to get the disciples of the Lord, and he is going out of his way to persecute them in a systematic way by getting letters, by getting the chief priests um, to endorse this and going to the officials in Damascus asking them to turn over those who belong to the way. Notice they're not called Christians, they're just called the way. It is a movement at this point within Judaism. And Saul is not just looking for the men. He's not just looking for the leaders. He is dragging off men and women. You might assume that children are thrown in too. There is a cruel systematic persecution happening in Saul who is breathing, souling threats uh, as leading the way. And so as he's going, um, thinking that he is doing the Lord's work, that is when he is confronted by a light from heaven. And before being told who this light is, we should know who this light is. It's the same light that says, I am the light of the world. This light is addressing Saul and asking him a question. But the first thing worth noting is that the moment he encounters this light, he falls to the ground. He falls to the ground because he is in the presence of God. That is the response common in the Old Testament to a theophany. We shake, we fall to the ground, our life is going to be changed. And so Saul falls to the ground because the power of this presence is so awesome and terrible and moving. And the voice says, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute those of the way, but why do you persecute me? This brings to mind the words in the parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus said, what you did to the, um, um, to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did also to me. Originally, that parable actually wasn't about the non-Christian world. It was about uh, people persecuting the church, saying, you know, what you do to the least of the brothers and sisters you do to me. And so the idea is that by, um, the idea is that by persecuting Jesus's followers, you are persecuting Jesus himself. But notice um, how quickly Jesus says, but get up. He doesn't ask Saul to repent. He doesn't ask Saul to feel guilty that there is a divine imperative. Jesus is wasting no time putting Saul to work. He doesn't ask him to reflect on his poor deeds. He just changes his life and says, go, I've got a different mission for you, which speaks to how quickly I think the Lord is ready to get us on to different work. You know, you and I, if this were us, we'd want to sit around in therapy for 15 years, lamenting all the bad things that we have done. And I say that a little jokingly, but you know, Jesus says, you're forgiven. Now get up. You know, I'm changing your life. Get up, enter the city, and you're going to be told what to do. And this whole action of being told to leave, saying, I'll tell you what to do later. If you read Genesis 12, there's a lot of parallels between God asking Abram to leave Haran and God telling Saul to get up and I'll tell you what to do later. Um, 
simple obedience is what's going to be required here. And so uh, he gets up and Saul could see nothing. Now, this idea of being blinded and having our sight restored, we can talk about that in a moment when we have some conversation. But notice, this isn't just a literal blinding and regaining of sight, but there is something deeply, deeply symbolic here. It brings to mind what Jesus says in John 9:39, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Jesus says this after healing a, a man blind from birth in John chapter 9. And of course, the irony of that particular story is that he's the one who can see, but the religious leaders who oppose his work are the ones who are blind. And so this raises the question, who is really blind? Who can really see? There's a lot of symbolism happening here. Um, because he can't see, we're told that he is led by the hand and brought into Damascus. Um, notice how quickly this powerful man with authority from the chief priest becomes vulnerable, how quickly he is leveled and becomes like a child who can't walk anywhere without guidance. Um, there's something tender about this image, but there's also something very human about it. Uh, it speaks to uh, the emptiness of hubris, how quickly our life can change, how quickly we can be out on our mission one day only to be led by the hand the next. And then finally, we're told in verse 9 that for three days, um, Saul did not eat or drink. This was an intentional fast, presumably, he took on because Saul is a pious man. And this is the way he can respond in order to the Lord's work. Now, Ananias is the other person God is working with behind the scenes. And uh, when the Lord calls Ananias, Ananias answers. I think it's worth noting that Ananias recognized the Lord's call. This is a man in touch with the voice of God. And he answers the way prophets of old would answer. Here, here I am, Lord. It's what Isaiah said. It's what Jeremiah said. And Ananias is taking his place in that faithful lineage of people who are obedient. And whenever God tells Ananias that he is to receive Saul, I don't think Ananias really objects, but he does express a concern. He says, are you sure, right? This is the man who is persecuting us. Are you sure you want me to welcome him? And the Lord's answer is very, very interesting. He says, go. So remember, uh, it starts with an imperative. For Saul, it was get up. And for Ananias, the word is go. And we can talk about that here in a bit. But, you know, the Lord often doesn't justify. He just gives us verbs. Go, get up, speak, listen, wait, you know, whatever there's an imperative, it's usually God speaking. But then we're told that Saul is an instrument and uh, we can have some conversations of whether or not you like that metaphor. Uh, an instrument who will bring God's name before Gentiles and kings and before all the people of Israel, basically before everybody. Gentiles, Israelites, kings, peasants, uh, this man is going to play a big role. But then in verse 16, Jesus says something that is a little difficult that I imagine will engender some conversation amongst us. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, it's important to name that this is not payback, right? Jesus is not saying, okay, 
uh, Saul really made Christians suffer, so now I'm going to make him suffer. This is not payback. Something else is being spoken of here, something that Paul himself will articulate in Romans 5.3 when he says, we glory in our sufferings. And so there is something about Paul's theology, if you read his own firsthand accounts, to where his relationship with suffering is very interesting. But here we have Jesus saying, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So just kind of hold that thought, and we'll see where that lands with you. So Ananias entered the house. He laid hands on Saul. This is ordination, right? You should notice this by now. Whenever there is the laying on of hands, an apostle or an important figure of the church is being commissioned. And notice what Ananias says in verse 17, brother Saul, brother. To be a Christian is to be part of a new family uh, in New Testament theology. And Ananias takes this enemy and says, brother. That is very, very significant. As brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to help you regain your sight. And so Saul was blinded, and now he will see again. And at the literal level, this is just the regaining of the capacity to see. But at the spiritual level, the sight Saul will regain is not the sight he had prior to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the point being made here is that over the course of our Christian journey, what we think we see is taken away, and in time we come to see something else. And then we have this great you know, metaphor and image of scales falling from his eyes. You know, that's a, a saying we still use uh, today whenever we have an epiphany and his sight was restored. Then Saul is baptized and finally he takes some food and he regains his strength. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Um, Y'all probably have lots of comments and questions about this. It's such a, a rich, rich passage and I'm curious what y'all think about it. Mary. Like always. Um, you had mentioned about the spiritually being blind. And I guess I don't, because of all the readings we've done and being on this side of all of it, that's not surprising at all because that's often used as sight for the spiritual, but also along with that. Um, so regaining his sight, he's not, that's the literal part, but he's actually gaining or will be gaining insight and vision spiritually. So it's, it's not just regaining a sight, but gaining a new sight. Um, I think, and that. And then the other piece is the suffering for my sake of my name. I think that's new to Saul, but not to the Christians. Jesus has said to them, you will have to take up my cross. I mean, he's warned them. They don't always get it, but he has shared that it's, it's a tough road to be his follower. So I think that that's maybe the first time Jesus can tell Saul this, and Saul's not going to get it because he was so zealous on the other side, but he's now going to start to understand it by living it in his vulnerability, in his new humanity, and as now a member of the way. Yeah, all good comments. The only thing I would add that is kind of an insight for me in reading this, I learned something new every time I study this passage, but the first time, this is the first time I've noticed that any tenderness that Jesus shows to Saul is through Ananias. But notice in Jesus's direct dealing with Saul, you know, he's pretty, he's stern. He's like, get up you're blind. You're going to suffer for my name, right? He's really 
this is not meek and mild Jesus asking Saul to consider the lilies of the field and let's kind of grow together in my kingdom. Jesus um, uh, works with Saul in a very direct and tough way and gives Ananias to Saul to show him the tenderness. And I can't help but think that's because, you know, um, the Lord works with us differently because we're all different. And if anyone has read Saul's letters, you figure out really, really quickly, he was a hard-headed character. And he probably needed a little uh, directness from Jesus to get the message. And we certainly have that in today's reading. Well, and I can agree. Yeah, sure. Dale, did you have a question? Yeah. I had a comment. Or, or comment, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, well, I, I guess I have lots of questions, but this is really is interesting. But the thing that I'm seeing are things that make me think of other, uh, other stories, other parts of the Bible that we've read. The Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? At first, I thought it was, you know, more out of anger, disappointment. But I think it's more God is saying, or Jesus ever is more disappointed. It made me think of Martha, Martha. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the same time, and you already touched on the here I am. I'd love those because Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Samuel and probably others that here I am. To me, those are just three powerful words. And I hope that when I think I'm hearing God, that I can say here I am. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, you know, so Ananias models that both verbally mm -hmm. and with his actions, right? Yes. He, he welcomes Saul. But here's the thing. There's also some subtle irony happening in that Saul will come to embody what a response to where I am looks like with our life, right? Because from this moment on, his whole life will be a visible, tangible, here I am, Lord. And God will use him, you know, and that noun we're given, I don't know what it is in the Greek, uh, is instrument. Um, you know, I'm sure depending on how you read that, it can be beautiful uh, or uh, difficult, right? So a beautiful reading of instrument is like there's a symphony, right? And we're an instrument in the symphony, doing something beautiful for creation, doing something beautiful for the world. But of course, the word instrument is also where we get the word instrumental, you know, as if we're just like a pawn being asked to do something for God. So I certainly prefer the first reading of the word instrument rather than the second. But sometimes people are taken, uh, take issue with that word instrument. Oh, I thought, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <coughs> Thank you. All right, Jackie, what, what do you see? I'm finding the background music very distracting today. Is there any way to turn it down or turn it off? I do not have background music on, so if someone has background music on, you might need I'm to... I'm hearing soft, melodious elevator background music. Am I the only one hearing it? I hear it a little bit, um, but I'm not sure where it comes from. I don't know where it's coming from, but I'm finding it very distracting. Hmm. Maybe the Lord Jackie. has given us how much we must suffer for his name as we do this. <laughs> but I'm, I'm noticing it when Jackie speaks, but not when other people. Yeah. So maybe it's my Zoom. Yeah. It might be your background, Jackie. In spite of the background music. 
when I when I saw the word instrument, I was thinking that an instrument can't do anything by itself. It has to have somebody uh, use it. You know, a musical instrument, a tool, any kind of instrument is just there unless someone uh, uses it. And in this case, the user is God. And I, I like that idea that we are instruments of God in the world. Yes. And the other little quirky thing, I always like the detail that uh, Saul was residing on a street called Straight. This is where Jesus set him straight. You know? <laughs> it's just, I've always liked the, the fact that that little detail is included in the story. And I'm going to go deal with my music. I, Jackie, I think if you just turn down your volume, you'll be okay. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, really, really good stuff. Um, other comments and questions about uh, Saul and his encounter here? Barbara? Um. So I, you know, you had asked us to sort of say, what do you, you know, what do you, what does this bring up for you? What do you react to? And I really went down a rabbit trail um, at the very beginning and it has nothing to do with the Bible, but I read about the um, threats and the murder and the persecution and dragging, you know, men and women bound to Jerusalem and uh, help my background. But um, I was starting to think about the Holocaust. Uh-huh and the persecution that the Jews experienced. And it sort of just put a different, uh, it gave me a different lens. You know, that knowledge and that understanding really gave me a, uh, just a different and uh, more three-dimensional perspective on what Saul was doing to this early Christian uh, community. Um, yeah. So... It's just, yeah, something to be made of it, but it's just how I was reacting. Well, so that whole verb, you know, breathing threats and murder. I mean, the, the point that Luke is making is this is a bad guy. Like, I mean, he's not a bad guy in the sense, I mean, he, but, but he, he is a religious zealot. Mm -hmm. And he believes that what he is doing is God's work. And he is intense. And so, you know, modern metaphors aren't going to be perfect. Um, but th there's a little bit of holy war happening here, right? Uh, if you're going to make, you know, it's always a little dicey, I think. Um, I, I think it's a, a okay to, to bring to mind the Holocaust, um, but it's, you know, I don't want to say that, like, he was like Hitler or something like that, but he, mm -hmm. but he was, he was tough. I mean, he was, he was, he, he was the worst of the worst, and the point being made is that God chose him as the instrument, and you know, that, that is worth talking about. Why would God choose him? What was God up to in doing that? You know, and what does that mean for us? Yeah. And alive. It's <laughs> <laughs> is, is much better. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. What about the metaphor of scales falling from your eyes and of new spiritual sight, you know, losing your sight? Uh, seen again, seen more clearly. Um, um, what 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 does that do for you? I mean, have you ever had an experience of you know the scale fell from my eyes and I saw the world differently, or I don't see God the way I used to? Has any of that metaphor of 
being blinded and seeing differently work for you in your experience? Literally, it does. I had LASIK. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. true. And I am as I'm as blind as anyone. Any people talk about that, and it. I, I will remember saying to my mother, I was standing upstairs looking out. We lived off of a golf course, and I said, I always knew I'd have a baby, and yes, that's a miracle. But to see leaves on a tree that are 500 yards away was totally new. So it gave me a new appreciation. So metaphorically, that can go over to uh, starting to better see and understand and appreciate what is going on around life. Um, it reminded me of when you say uh, the quote about seeing dimly through the mirror. Yeah. And then there'll be a time that we, we get to see more and know all, which yeah. that goes to this. That's great. Anyone else? Just scales falling from eyes, having your spiritual sight given to you. I mean, does that metaphor work for you? Yes, Barbara. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, um, I was uh, involved in a, a religious cult and had an experience where it was just on the spot um, hearing, hearing a voice and, um, and it totally changed my life on the spot. I mean, just a sharp, sharp turn. Um, and it was away from this cult and it was toward, um, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was very powerful. It was very powerful. Fundamentally, totally, uh, opened the door really in so many dimensions for me. That's a powerful, powerful witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that some people that I've talked to, everyone's journey is different. And, you know, one of the mistakes that we can make in our spiritual life is to judge our journey by someone else's journey, you know? So someone had a, a big conversion experience and we've just been kind of steadily going about our life trying to be faithful and we think maybe their experience is, is better, you know, uh, or the opposite, you know, maybe someone else has had this steady kind of um, faith and, and ours comes and fits and starts. And we imagine that God's work with them is, is better and we envy their spiritual path. But, you know, um, my experience in being a pastor is that God works with all of us very differently. And some of us have those experiences where, you know, one day we're on the road to Damascus, the next day we're knocked down, heading in, the, in a different direction. Uh, some of us have just always kind of been steadily uh, feel like God is leading us by the hand and, and neither experience is better than the other. They're just different. Okay, so what does Saul do? For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. 
After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him before the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Okay, so in just a paragraph or two, Saul goes from being someone greatly feared by the church and not trusted to someone they're trying to protect because he's now the most valuable asset or one of them, and that happens very quickly. Um, so he is staying with the disciples in Damascus, and uh, it says that immediately he goes out to the synagogues, presumably the same synagogues he was going to, to round up the men and women in the first place to drag them off. But instead of actually rounding up the men and women, he puts his arm around them and says, brother, sister, I am your brother Saul, right? He is their Christian brother now who has been baptized, and he stands up to everyone's shock to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, which would have been heard as blasphemy by um, those in the synagogue. And people were amazed. I mean, I don't know what that Greek word is for amazed, but I'm sure it's not strong enough of a word. They were stunned. You know, is not this the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem and who was actually trying to ruin those who are doing what he's now doing? And notice whenever they say, is not this the same man, that's the same language when any healing takes place. You know, is this not the same man who used to sit and beg by the beautiful gate? Often yeah. when people in scripture say, is this not the same man? It's a basic way of the author drawing attention to the great change and the great healing that's happened in uh, their life. Verse 22, we're told that Saul became increasingly more powerful and that he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, presumably by going to the Hebrew scriptures and arguing from scripture. But that word proving in verse 22 is significant. It reminds us of Acts chapter 1 verse 3, where uh, we're told that after Jesus is suffering, he presented himself to the disciples and gave them many convincing proofs. And uh, this is a reminder that part of Luke's project here is to offer uh, a proof to basically um, let the Christians know that the faith they suffer for um, is um, in that it's legit and valid, but also to let the Romans know that this new movement called the Way uh, is the continuation of the story of Israel. So. Luke feels like he needs to be proving this, and that word prove finds its way throughout the book of Acts. 
Verse 23, we're told some time had passed, whether it's been a couple days, a couple weeks, or a couple months, we don't know. But we do know that Saul has grown so powerful and has so irritated his former friends that they resolved to kill him. We're told that many times in only a few verses, that they wanted to kill him because he is now the greatest enemy to the stability of their faith as they understand it. Um, but the disciples have shifted from being skeptical of him uh, to protecting him. And notice how they lower him down in a basket in order to uh, protect them from the plot of death. This brings to mind Moses, right, who was put in a basket and then left in the Nile River. Um, it leaves one questioning whether this is an intentional reference and whether Saul is now seen as a new Moses, a new liberator, someone who's going to rescue um, uh, the Gentile Christians and to kind of bring them into the fold. Uh, I tend to think that is intentional uh, symbolism, but we'll see what you think here in a little bit. Um, now, um, Saul is in with the disciples outside of Jerusalem, but whether or not he's going to be received by uh, the 12 and those still in Jerusalem, that is a different matter. And we're told in verse 26, he made an attempt to join them, but they wouldn't have any of it. They were still afraid of him and they didn't trust him, right? They knew what he had done. They had heard stories of people he had persecuted, right? This was very personal for them. But what happened was Barnabas basically had the ticket in and Barnabas just marched him right in and said, look, uh, I know this guy. I saw his conversion. I've heard him preach. He's legit. And we need to welcome him in. And so this is a really big moment where Saul first receives the welcome and the blessing of the disciples in Jerusalem. We're not told specifically that Peter is there or James, but we can assume that uh, these are kind of the core disciples of the church, many of whom uh, are among the 12 apostles. And after he tells his uh, testimony, um, we're told that he goes in and out among Jerusalem and that Saul does what he's commissioned to do. He speaks boldly in the name of Jesus. He is arguing with the Hellenists. That's basically the Greek-speaking Jews um, trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to him. And every time he preaches, people try to kill him. And then the believers rescue Saul. And this will be a theme in the book of Acts. Saul's preaching gets him in trouble. People try to kill him. And the Christians somehow save him and protect him. And then finally, in verse 31, we just have a summary statement um, that the church had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is really just Luke's way of saying that now that Saul is in, um, there's a time of relative stability and growth and that things are going pretty well. That's kind of the gist of that summary statement. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Bonnie, let's start with you. Okay, well, verse 25, where it talks about lowering him through an opening in the wall, I thought of Rahab, where she helped the, the two people escape by, yeah. over the wall. Yeah, and that's, that's really, you know, it's interesting because there are some connections there because, you know, Rahab was a spy, right? And uh, Saul is now 
you know, um, he's not quite a spy. He's just kind of flipped allegiances. Rahab also flipped allegiances, right? She was of the, the people of Cana, and now she's with the people uh, of Israel. And in and, and a similar way, Saul has flipped allegiances. So that's a, a great catch, Bunny. I'm going to give you the Old Testament award because I remember last week you caught the Jonah reference. So uh, if, if you do it again next week, I'm actually going to give you a medal. So keep it up. That's good stuff. <laughs> Barbara, did you have something? Oh, yeah, but it was nothing. It's like <laughs> I belong in kindergarten. The, um, just, you know, the description of, you know, how passionate Saul was in his preaching and you know, how much he was irritating certain people. And it reminds me of being a uh, reformed smoke, former smoker. And people who used to, I mean, I grew up around smoke, never bothered me much, smoked for two years, quit. I was rabid about um, not smoking and had to really rein it in um, around people. I mean, it really bothered me a lot. And so that, contrast that recovery experience that he had um i don't know somehow it just reminds me of a lived experience of just you know that passion and commitment of change yeah mary the thing that i appreciated here is as this is telling the story of saul and what he did and how he did it is that this is about him doing it, not him saying it about himself, which he uses so often in his evangelism. If, if I could get this, then how much more easy for you? Or, because I used to feel like he was pretty, oh, I do, I love Paul, but I feel like a lot of it's boasting and it's, a lot of it seems like it's about him. But uh -huh. here is the reason, here is the actual conversion, the, the he being an instrument and seeing how it works. So I appreciated that because it's going to soften my, my uh, whatever, <laughs> having to listen to the zealot convert <laughs> like Barbara's describing. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that. Go ahead, Gail. Well, the other thing, I, the, the Saul in the Old Testament warning David, and David was slit down in a rope in Samuel, right? to escape do you remember that am i i don't i'm i i'm assigning bunny as my old testament scholar so maybe she oh, hey bunny help me out sweetie maybe she knows but it, it sounds right you know there's this whole narrative oh. right? david is running away remember david and samuel they're running away yeah but i don't remember a basket so but, but there there are many times Gail, to your point, where Saul is running away, I mean, where um, David is running away from Saul, mm -hmm. and David kind of uh, escapes um, before Saul can kill him. Is that kind of what you're referencing? Yes. Yeah. I just don't, can't remember well enough. When I think of Samuel, I think of here I am, Lord, you know. Yeah. And on that story, but anyway, that's, that's also kindergarten, Barbara. And <laughs> we're not, we're not on Bunny's level. I agree. We're now on Bunny's level. Jackie? I, I really think this second half of the story speaks to how hard it is for us to accept change in people we think we know. Um, especially adults, you know, it's like, oh, come on, you know, I, 
I think it I think it's hard for us to recognize change in people, especially a radical change like with with Saul. And uh, I always like the the phrase that the the disciples in Jerusalem were afraid of him. You know, I would have been afraid of him too. Even now, he's kind of crazy. He's off the wall, and and it's like I just think. I think change is hard on us personally, and I think it's hard for us to accept change in other people. I think that's that's well said, and um, I think that that's, you know, a demonstrated fact that uh, I also think, I can't speak for all of you, but, you know, let's just say hypothetically, imagine someone, don't name any names, with, of whom you don't have a very high opinion who uh, might not behave in a way that you deem to be Christian. And let's just say, you know, let's just say hypothetically tomorrow that he or she announces on TV that there's been a conversion and these are my priorities and they're all of your priorities or if they're not your priorities or Christian priorities or whatever. And then you say, hmm. And then let's say the next day I'm inviting him or her to St. Michael's to speak. And you're like, whoa, you know, like what's happening here? You know, I mean, there'd be a cynical side. Uh, you said, this is moving too fast. Like, is this even real? You know, so we can often be cynical, I think, whenever we hear of people uh, having these changes or announcing that there's a new life happening inside of them. And uh, that's a little bit different, Jackie, than your emphasis, but that's, that's also something that it raises for me. Yeah, Jackie, I mean, he, he went, he was well received before his conversion and he was well received in some of the churches after his conversion, although we can tell from his letters, uh, he was a divisive figure at times within churches that people were sometimes, you know, talking about him behind his back and had issues with him. Um, but it was a hard life, you know, I mean, when Jesus said, I've got to show this guy how much he has to suffer for my name. Um, the evidence that Paul's life bears that out, you know, constant death threats, running away. And, um, you know, there's this great summary statement at the end of the passage in verse 31, how, meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. They lived in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, this statement almost contrasts with Paul's experience. You know, Paul lived in the fear of the Lord and had the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't like, you know, it sounds like there was stability and peace and harmony and kind of an easy road for the church for a season. That's at least how I read that verse. But Paul's own journey as he traveled as a missionary was very rocky and, uh, but also very exciting. And, um, and so it just kind of speaks to the different experiences that Christians can have, I think. Well, so part of what I want to ask you, so here we have this story where, I mean, this, this chapter is all about Saul's conversion, right? Saul is going one way and his life turns around. And whether that happens suddenly or gradually, you know, the word repent means to turn. The idea is that we're going one direction, then we kind of turn, we go a different direction. And so again, whether that happens um, in an instant or over a lifetime, um, I think what is being held up here as a template for the Christian life and I guess the, the question I would have us reflect on now is, where do you want to see that happen in your life? 
where do you want to see it happen in our world or where do you see it happening in your life or where do you see it happening in our world? Um, so I'll just kind of throw that out there. Where, do, where does Jesus need to come knock some of us down and set us straight? Can I answer? I think that the church needs to be a stronger and more visible model for compassion for the less fortunate. You know, I, I read a meme on Facebook and it said, when Jesus said, feed the poor and, and take care of the widows and the orphans, it's Christianity. But when a politician says that it's socialism, you know, or it's a bad thing. And mm -hmm. I think, I think in many ways we've, we've lost our, our, we're scared. This, these are scary times. And when you're scared and filled with fear, you're not thinking about other people. And all of us here in this group are better off than a lot of people out there in the world and I, I think we we forget that and in our fear we try to hold on to what we have and not not be responsive to people who have real needs. So that's really, really good. That's a great place to start. But I want to take it deeper a little bit, right? So let's use the metaphor of being blinded and having fresh sight. So the way that I would kind of take what you said in the context of our story is that fear is one of those things that blinds us, right? It blinds us to other people. It blinds us to ourselves. Like if we're super afraid, we have a hard time seeing accurately. We see through our fears, our prejudices, our biases, our past history, right? So um, what, you know, how do I phrase this? what is the antidote to fear? Is it, and this is, this can be for you, Jackie, or for anyone else. Is it a choice we make? Is it an experience we have? Like, how do we kind of shift things and get unstuck? Mary? For me, the antidote to fear is peace. And the peace that comes from, I quoted, but the peace from my faith, the peace from my belief in what's here. I, however, a conversion or whatever a conversion might be for me or for something that I witness. I do think that the church, you said, how can it be helped by the church? What you're doing, helping um, us, the church, as they help the members understand that there's not necessarily right or wrong or that you don't beat yourself up, that fear is okay. I think that's what the church has to do is help us find our way not the way necessarily, but our way into the relationship. Um, and back to um, Jackie's talking about, and you're expounding upon the recognition of change, is the church, you and or the church can help us appreciate the change, to help us not be cynical or help us to calm ourselves. And, and so I think that that's, that's what's needs. I can't, I'm not, coming up with a conversion needed right now. I like Jackie's example. I am thinking of it in terms of the girls I work with in the sex trafficking, in the sex trafficking world. I just had a, a person that's out of jail and just to see the light in her eyes and the hope of new life, it, she, it's a flip. 
and that's pretty awesome. That's so the, the metaphor from scripture that I love there is where it says Saul could see nothing, so they led him by the hand. Now I don't claim to be the all-seeing eye who takes all you people by the hand who don't see. That's not my. That's not who I am. But I do think that um, our role as a church, right, is uh, when people stumble, when they don't see clearly, to gently, it's gentle. Let's take people by the hand, right? It's personal. Um, let's, let's take them by the hand and walk with them. And also just a word about cynicism because it's come up a little bit. Uh, this has nothing to do with the book of Acts, but I do want to share my thoughts on cynicism. Um, don't try to get rid of your cynicism. Um, it's not going to work. But what I think we can learn to do is to see our cynicism and just to observe it, to witness it, uh, to be like, oh, that's my cynicism, and to listen to it, but to not let it take over. And so um, uh, I find that in this world, I've never met anyone who doesn't have a cynical voice that doesn't pop up from time to time. Uh, but I've also learned that if we fight with that vo voice, it always goes badly. And so if we can learn to see it and to love it and to kind of embrace it, to give it the grace that we would give to other people, um, usually the cynic isn't as loud. So that's my two cents on cynicism. Hey, John, I think that also applies to fear um, because I think if you turn toward it, um, if I turn toward it, and look at it closely, it starts to, you know, it may have monstrous proportions while I'm just experiencing it, but if I can take a step back and look at it um, and realize that I am living in community, that I'm not alone in living with that fear or having that fear, that I have a sense of community around me, um, that really helps to dissolve it. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that's great. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I, I, yes. You know, so fear fear is tricky. You know, the the goal isn't to disown it, to banish it as if it was some demon, but to kind of gather with other people and to look at it and to to maybe face it a little bit with gentleness and compassion. You know, the, the more we try to banish things from our life, the more they tend to come out in ugly ways. That's what I've learned. <laughs> so I think it would, it would apply for, for fear as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to be mindful of our time. So let me, let me just kind of offer this thought. First is, I'm sorry I missed Monday email. That won't happen again. Um, the second is, um, my hope is that you will see in this story uh, not dead history, but living happening. Um, that what God uh, did with Saul, God is always doing. And the question is, do we have eyes to see it? Are we looking for it? Uh, can we name it and celebrate it when it takes place? And so I would just invite you um, to reread this chapter and to look for it in our world because um, God knows there's lots to see, you know, getting on that theme of what do we see. There's lots to see right now that's disheartening. And if that's all we're looking for, it's all we're going to find, right? But if we believe that God is a God who takes people on the road to Damascus and kind of, you know, sets them straight and gives them something meaningful to do and brings in people like Ananias to take them by the hand, 
we might start to see that as well. And so my challenge to all of us, myself included, is to, you know, to look for that in the world in the coming weeks, uh, because I think part of what the world needs are people who actually see this happening and who can be a witness. Remember that word in the book of Acts, be a witness to the good work that God is doing, even in the midst of our very troubling times. 